Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up earlier today with uh, Doug Ramshaw, CEO of Monero Alamos, uh, TSXV, Gold Explorer Assets in Mexico. Uh, we've spoken to them a few times uh, in the last year. These guys are mine builders. Um, first project, Santana, uh, out of the gate, will be producing this year. I suspect Cerro de Oro, the second project producing next year, uh, and a third one sometime after that. So we catch up with what they've been up to since we spoke in December. Um, and how things are advancing and the state of our finances. All looks good, really. So uh, sit back and enjoy this one. And uh, if you want to hear our views and opinions on this, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. We can also find detailed company reports and analysis. There's commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities, which I think will give you some good insights. There are training courses on there to help you with your diligence process. We've done summaries of interviews uh, that we've done to save you some time because we know you're busy. And if you want to join a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, safe, friendly environment, free from trolling, judgment and abuse, you should again join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Doug, how are we, sir? Good, Matt. Good to be with you. Happy New Year in March. It's been that long. Let's, let's go with it. Happy New Year to you. <laughs> In March, uh, we spoke at the beginning of December, literally beginning of December, um, and you've you know been an interesting market for precious metals since. Come off a bit. Do you think it's back down to realistic levels? Why do you think we've reset? Oh, yeah. I mean, January fourth. I think we all thought we were going to be geniuses, right? Like uh, we got out to the out of the gates pretty uh, pretty well, and I think we've had. Half a dozen good trading days since. A bit of a carbon copy of how 2020 started, and hopefully without the March 16th uh, bloodbath uh, uh, next week. Um, no, I mean, the whole sector, I don't think we were frothy last year. I, you know, there was a lot of talk that even at $1,800 gold, the, the, the big producers were kind of priced in like we were in a $1,600 gold environment. And I think it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> um, obviously, all eyes have been on the yield curve. and uh, um, But it, it's, it's just hard to imagine with the paper printing and everything else that gold hasn't at least established itself at, at a much higher new base than where we entered this market. Does that mean that, you know, we're going to go to some of the levels people want? Probably not. I don't know. And I, I don't really care. Um, these levels, as the majors are showing with the amount of free cash they're spinning off, are very good gold prices. Maybe they're not going to be good gold prices for companies who need to raise money and, and try their hand at, you know, playing, drilling Mother Nature's, uh, uh, you know, but um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, we're we're amongst good company in terms of how Monero uh, has performed this year. Uh, I hate to say it, but we are. Um, have you, have you, what's your perception of the market? Because since we spoke, we've had the kind of GameStop incident, the Reddit crowd come to town and the Robin Hooders flex their muscles. Uh, is that concerns you that perhaps there's a new paradigm here or we're going to just all get back to normal soon? Yeah, and I, I think probably the bigger thing is crypto as well, which has been on a tear. Um, I don't understand why 
the crypto space need to act like this is the death of gold. And I don't understand why the gold space need to feel threatened by crypto. We can all get along. I mean, in reality, I think that this, you know, at a time where fiat is devaluing and, and there are the concerns of, of, of fiat in general, there's probably rather like in the old days where you say, oh, I have a few percent of gold in your portfolio. What's the harm in having a few percent of both in your portfolio? Now, I'm not a crypto guy. I don't have exposure to it, but I can see the appeal for it. But one shouldn't have to kill the other, and we shouldn't be at, at odds with each other. But it's it's a remarkable kind of battle right now when you see the, the lines being drawn on Twitter and, and the like. So I think crypto has probably been more of an impact on gold, coupled with you know this other stuff, the GameSpot, Tesla. You're seeing it with... COVID testing companies in Canada, that it's fast money, it's momentum play. I saw one that went from 20 cents to $2.60, 600 million market cap, back to 80 cents now, but that's drawing a lot of fast money. Um, and I think in the gold and silver space, you need to be patient. We're at the beginning of what could be, you know, a good period for these markets, but it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't. It feels like the, uh, the there's always a bigger boat in the harbour scenario where the gold guys are getting a, a taste of some of the medicine that they've been dishing out over the past year and a half. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's a dangerous conversation to start. But uh, def- definitely one that's being had. You know, I was looking at a um, some research that came out of a university in the United States about the impact of the, the Robin Hooders and, you know, gave us a profile of what they're like, you know, average amount of dollars in their account, 240 bucks, but collectively very powerful, mainly says this report because they don't know what they're doing. There you go. <laughs> Exciting times ahead. We better, we better talk about Monero Alamos, I suspect. Um, so why don't you give us that customary one minute overview of the business so people know, understand the moving parts, then we kind of get into a conversation. Yeah, Monero is currently building its first of what will be three mines in Mexico where, uh, you know, our key strength is we are an operating team. Um, we don't build enough at the junior end of the spectrum. And, and so that's why I think so many junior companies rely on the equity markets. Uh, so we're gold focused, Mexican based, been operating down there for 13 years and really on the cusp of moving from that developer construction phase to mining production, which will, will I think, you know, clearly make this a transformative year for, for the company. Um, so very excited about uh, the months ahead. Right. And just again, remind because we again, since we've spoken, we've had a stack new uh, a, a increase of sub, uh, subscribers, uh, new generalists coming in. Some of these Robin Hooders coming in. Some of, you know, some of these millennials that you know, people want to, want to chase down coming into a space they don't quite understand. So let's remind them about some of the things which have attracted us to you guys is like, you have built mines before in country. Yeah, no. Um, every mine, as Darren always tells me, hey, they've, you know, they've all been successful. Um, one of them, one of them was bought out by Argonaut. Was a foundation, a foundational asset for Argonaut when it was bought out. Uh, we specialize in, you know, we were in a capital-intensive business. Uh, we specialize in industry-leading capital intensity. Uh, the first mine we're building is. Because of COVID, going to probably come in at 
closer to 12 million Canadian than 10 million Canadian to build a gold mine. And if you put that up against any uh, any other operation, um, uh, that's that's leading capital intensity. So um, and and honestly, like the best way I think to play the gold market is to be producing this stuff. Well, I mean, that's the unusual thing, because I think a lot of junior companies um, don't get into production. That's not the game. It's playing the capital markets is, is the game. So, I mean, if you talk about Santana, you said you've, it's, taken, it's going from 10 million to 12 million. It's taking a couple of months longer. Is that entirely down to COVID? Yeah, I mean, largely it was. Like uh, when we're, and I, I mean, that 12 is me spitballing. It could be less than that, but I'd, I'd like to think there's probably been a couple of million dollars cost creep. Uh, um, the, in Mexico, like a lot of Latin American countries last year, uh, there was a, pretty much a complete shutdown of, of mining activities. Um, and that, that happened in April and May. So our pre-COVID guidance was six to eight months to build this thing. Uh, really building only started kind of June, late June, uh, because of those shutdowns. Some work had been done with the community prior. Um, but uh, so, there were certain time costs involved. There's, there's logistical challenges with trying to build in a COVID environment, which all add to a little bit of cost creep. So back, back last year when COVID hit the sector, you know, broadly, I joked, I, I thought everyone's going to get a COVID quarter. Um, we're probably going to use a month and a half or so, two months of that COVID quarter. I mean, I, I think everyone is realistic that timelines and a bit of cost creep have, have come in. Uh, the key thing is, have, you know, did you have to just completely shut down and stop your business plan? No, we were able to find ways to adjust um, and, get it, and get it done. So um, we'll probably wrap up construction right around month end. Um, this month, at least of the, the construction that needs to be done prior to the beginning of mining. Right. And, and then what? How do you get this thing into production? Oh, well, I mean, the material should go onto the pads uh, early April and, and the leach cycle can start. Um, you know, construction of a heap leach is really largely earthworks. Um, there's, there's a large heap leach pad. You've got your pregnant and barren ponds. And for us, not building an ADR, because um, we're shipping loaded carbon. It's a ba very basic um, carbon plant that we're constructing. So, so all that's just being wrapped up now. Uh, we can, there'll probably be certain electrical work and certain piping that still is being installed at the carbon plant whilst materials going on the path. So, so, you know, I have a lot of people ask me, when's first gold? And, and we're guiding end of Q2. We're guiding Q2, but I've been saying to people, it's going to be towards the end of Q2. Um, but I, the real question should be, when does mining start? Because everything plays off the beginning of that, that, that ore on the pad and, and leaching of that. So, yeah, guiding Q2 really does suggest that we're, we're putting material on the pads in, uh, in early Q2. And, and certainly the first gold production is going to be a modest amount to the first delivery. And everything about this year is ramping up. Like 2022 will be the first year that we, we would give formal production guidance because the first six, seven months of this year is really just showing it works and probably being in a position by Q4 that we're spinning off free cash from, from the operation. Okay. And as to my previous question about, you know, is it entirely down to um, COVID at no point 
in terms of the delays to time and increase in costs. At no point did you point your finger towards the Mexican government. Um, so that's interesting. Um, and you know, tell me if, if, if it's different from that. Um, and therefore, do you think they've got any ability to impact your, ability, your timing on being able to, with, with regards to the mining, with, with regards to production, with regards to your guidance? Yeah, no, I mean, the Mexican government, uh, the, the actual issue has not been constructing so much as um, having to work with government officials in terms of being able to get them out to site during COVID lockdowns and stuff like that, uh, that impeded their ability to travel for site inspections and routine inspections that have to take place during the construction. Um, those were some of the things that delayed us a little uh, last year in terms of hitting certain internal milestones, but they didn't actually stop anything from developing. So, no, I mean, even with the AMLO government, the permitting environment and, and the permitting process in Mexico didn't change. Um, so, you know, there, there are obviously other headlines coming out of Mexico, which I think are very company specific rather than, um, you know, industry-wide. Right, so you, we, you took mention of to the president of, of Mexico. He's being vilified in some quarters and positioned as a little bit vindictive. But your view is what? It's, it, it's company-specific, not industry-specific, no concerns for your company. You know, key thing is be a good corporate citizen. Pay your dues like you and I do in our respective countries. Pay the tax man. I just sent money to the CRA this morning. Um, uh, and, you know, you should be fine. Uh, you know, community licenses is, is, is good in Mexico, uh, so long as you, you approach it correctly. And, and a community license, I think, or social license goes all the way up to, you know, federal governments and, and acting as a good corporate citizen at that level as, you know, not just at the community level. Yeah, I think that's right. We, I was sort of sharing a panel on one of these sort of Mexican, um, online conferences about a month ago we were talking about this i don't think we we're meant to but it just seems a much more interesting area to discuss about companies need to be better corporate citizens that's the guest of whichever country they're in and paying your dues locally and, and, and federally is critical if if they want to be treated a certain way if, if you know if if if, the, if mining is to uh, regain its uh, reputation as it were Honestly, uh, you know, to me, um, social license is as important as having appropriate metallurgical work done on your deposit or, you know, having sufficient drill spacing that the resource is going to reconcile correctly when you're mining. You know, if you don't have the resource figured out, thing can blow up, even if you've got the other two sorted. If you've got great met and great social uh, resource but you haven't tackled your social license doesn't matter how great the deposit is it will it will blow up in your face so so i we treat social license and uh work in the community like we would having proper met before going into leaching a gold deposit it's it's vital and it's important and it can't be overlooked mexican government seem to obviously been mining people have been mining in mexico for hundreds of years, uh, but they, they seem to have got the balance right because you guys can move from discovery through to production with relative ease without the delays. Do you, have you seen, so but despite that, have you seen any improvement in the 
permitting process and the licensing process since you've been there? You talked about being there 13 years. Has it improved or is it the same as ever? Well, I mean, under the previous government to AMLO, permitting would be about 10 months. That's our, that was our experience, at least in northern Mexico. Um, AMLO came in, our permitting process took 14 months. But if you actually strip out the four months where the government elections took place and all the bureaucrats were changing around, you're really around the same 10 months to, or, or so, 10 months a year. So we're anticipating those kinds of timelines for Cerro de Oro. Um, we should have uh, surface rights agreements in the coming weeks that will allow us that's where Mexico does permitting, right? You start with the community and the, those agreements, and then you're allowed to submit per federal permit applications. So when those go in, probably sometime in Q2, we're anticipating being in a position to, to start construction maybe as early as Q1 of next year. If, if we're right about that, then that allows a project like Cerro de Oro to be acquired in August of 2020 and actually be running a little over two years later. And there are very few jurisdictions in the world where you could look at a timeline from picking up a project to having it in production inside of two years or around two years. So, so I don't think too much has changed under AMLO. Obviously everything has changed under COVID. Uh, so it will be interesting on the tail end of, of, as things get back to normal, if what we were seeing prior to COVID is, is what we can expect moving forward. But certainly we had enough of a window prior that we're, we're comfortable with the environment down there. It, again, just kind of harking back to this panel that I was on, we had seven different CEOs on there. And let's, let's I'm trying to be polite, here we go. A wide range of personalities on there and their personalities seem to reflect how they wanted to do business and engage with the Mexican government. And as a result, it seems to me that they were each receiving different types of treatment. I think you know we had a sort of rather bombastic, bombastic uh, personality on there. Perhaps we're struggling to gain traction. Um, so, do, do you think the kind of cultural component is 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 important to this? Because you know, if you if you come in loud and proud, um, it seems to be the Mexicans don't necessarily enable your your company to move forward at the pace you want. It felt like. Yeah, there's a reason they keep me here in Canada. No, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I, the, the reality is, I think one of our strengths is our team is largely Mexican. Mexican nationals, even Darren, our CEO, the mine builder, who has basically lived down there since March of last year with a, a, a minor break over Christmas. Um, exactly where you want the mine builder to be, but you know, quite the sacrifice he's been making on behalf of, of, of all of us and as shareholders. Um, he's got his permanent residency in Mexico. I mean, we, we, we're, we're not trying to operate down there, you know, from some office in Vancouver, you know, with a skeleton crew. And like we're so when, when we do our permitting, Federico Alvarez, our COO, who was the uh, director of mining for Guanajuato for 10 years, highly regarded and everything. When he goes in and does, talks to the community and stuff, they're not seeing me. Um, or, or for that matter, Darren. Darren backs off and like, this is Federico's area. They're talking to one of their own. Um, and I think you're right. There are different approaches you can take. 
Um, but the approach we have is we are largely a Mexican company. But when you look at our staffing down there, uh, that's why it was easier during COVID. We won't fly in, fly out with a whole bunch of expensive expats. You know, we we have a Mexican team there. Uh, and, and I think so we understand the culture and we, we operate within that. And that certainly, I think, has aided us for sure, not just recently, but over the whole time that Darren's had that team together. Yes, interesting because a comment uh, people in our private investors club will, will have heard this and me tell this story. But you know, we, we had some inbound from uh, people new to the mining space, and we're wondering why companies like yourself sort of tippy toe around these governments because they should be pleased that you're down there creating jobs for them. That was the that was the statement that was made. Well, I mean, yes, and I, I mean in in the case of, but I mean. You don't get cocky about that. You need us more than uh, you know. We need you. Uh, you know, it's still. Uh, I think it's always a fragile relationship that you're working with because you know there's always elements in in a population that are more populist, more you know this. And so there's. It's very easy for sometimes mining companies to be vilified unfairly. Um, so you never. But yeah, we bring a certain expertise, and and in our case. A support for for Mexico because we're we're developing projects that probably wouldn't be developed by the bigger companies. We're, we're providing the employment, we're providing the tax receipts. We we like to think we are a benefit to to that country. And right now, say in Sonora, there's a whole bunch of mines. Actually, not just Sonora. I mean that El Castillo project that Darren built that was in Argonaut now, it's kind of coming to the end of its life. There's a bunch of other projects which are coming to the end of their life, or at least through their glory days. So, it, you know, you need to see teams bringing in the next mines that are going to be around for the next 10, 10 years because we're talking about trying to provide sustainable change um, in communities and, and, and at state level. Right. Okay. But it sounds like you've both got to work together for, for mutual benefit. Um, right. That's Santana. Should we talk about um, CDO? Sarah Del Oro uh, saw a couple of uh, announcements about the resource estimate. Is that what you were expecting? Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny. I tip, tiptoed around it when we announced the deal. I, I said, look, when we when we built the El Castillo mine, we started it out on a 300,000 ounce resource at 0.37 of a gram and about a one and a half to one strip ratio. Um, you know, we can build low grade and build it successfully. I kind of figured that both grade ounces and strip ratio were going to be better than all those uh, at El Castillo. And it was. It's still a conservative resource uh, uh, estimate. We, uh, we used mining costs, which we know are higher than what we're even going to be doing at Santana. So but conservative. We used 1450 gold. The whole point of this, and we've spoken before, is building a business that works in any gold environment, not just the current one we're in. We're talking about 10-year lives. It's like you have to account for any change in the gold pricing, including one that can drop. So we we think um, that is, I mean, at spot gold, that's almost a million ounces there. Uh, we're not talking spot gold in our resource so, because we want to apply it conservatively. So yeah, Cerro you know, that was a nice, um, starting resource base to work from. It will get bigger, a lot bigger. We, we are really 
call it the other day a beast. I, I think as that unfolds over the next year, year and a half, uh, it will more than overcome any perception of low grade, which we don't even have an issue with because we built mines at lower grade. Uh, it will get bigger. It will be a, like all our projects, we don't mind starting a 50,000 ounce operation that Cerro is going to be 50, 60, probably initially. But can we see a path to 100,000 ounces a year? We absolutely can see that path at Cerro Doro, um, like we can at Santana. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm really excited about that. And you'll see a dual track of news this year. Uh, obviously, all this, the production-related stuff at Santana. But alongside that, Cerro Doro, which will be our number two mine that we, we look to build. Um, that work will go alongside Santana. So, so remind me about the money again, because it was Santana... You'll, it'll start by free cash flowing at some point, as, as you described earlier, to get CDO up and running. Are we needing to go back into the market? No, no. If we, uh, so we've got, we started the year with about 18 million in cash, zero debt. Nice rarity for a, a soon to be gold producer to start debt free. You're not servicing anything in that regard. And we still had about, $3 million worth of prime mining stock. In fact, we still got $3 million of prime mining stock. So um, probably right now we're around $16 million in cash uh, off the top of my head and, and $3 million in stock. Uh, so we got more than enough capital to get Santana obviously finished and up and running. Uh, and the plan was always that with the extra capital, we can be advancing Cerro still have capital left by the time we're building that, with contributing capital from Santana. Uh, one of the things we will probably do, I said this to Darren last year, is we come up with very good payment terms with our contractor um, and the like. A lot of, uh, th there's lots of ways to massage how, how the working capital for the mining activities start. Um, we, we never see ourselves getting down to, to fumes on this. But it's still prudent to have a working capital facility in place. I'm not sure what form it will take. Maybe because this is a heat leach and you have gold that sits on the pad in inventory effectively, you know, do you do we look at some prepayment of, of gold on the pad with uh we're looking at those kinds of facilities because we want to be able to ensure that nothing stalls you know in terms of where we want to deploy capital this year, just because we want to you know, ride everything out with Santana perfectly and go into free cash and then build Cerradora from that. So, uh, but no, right now, unless we were to do another big deal, um, uh, there is no need for us to go back to the market and the bankers will hate hearing that. But that's the reality. That financing at the end of last year uh, gives us tremendous confidence in, in making that statement. They're going to still offer it off you money. Don't worry about it. The bankers will be fine. Yeah. They're going to keep... <laughs> <laughs> Those phone calls won't stop because um, that's their job. Um, the reason I asked that is because I, I wanted to hear you say no more dilutory fundraisings because I'm looking at your share price. You've, you've come off. You were sort of 68 when we spoke. You're down to 55. Do you put that entirely down to the gold price or is this a kind of Lassonde curve type moment for you? Well, we went through the Lassonde curve. Part. Like we're actually at the we're actually at the decent part of the Lassonde curve, which is right on the cusp of production. I the, there's one issue that I think I have with the Lassonde curve. I'm sorry, Pierre, but it I I it maybe in your original one it was not drawn the same way, but quite often you see 
the Lasson curve, and it's the expiration discovery peak, the orphan period, and then this peak that seems to have the same trajectory on production as discovery peak, and it's not the case. Like, you know, it's a slower ramp up on that, but the key point is it's a ramp up. Um, so we're right at the cusp. I mean, if you wanted a point other than days before a discovery was announced, if you wanted a point on that curve to be, it's exactly where we are right now. I don't like the stock that the stocks come off and followed the sector uh, because it has. I'm not going to use that as a crutch, though. I'm not happy with it. Um, you know, does it uh, galvanize me to to make sure that people, for whatever reason, if they sold because they don't like the company or sold because there are hundreds of reasons why people need to sell stock. You know, but it is my goal to make them feel stupid about it, and um, you know, and and to make people who bought their paper feel smart about it. That. That's my job, um, and I look forward to it. Beautiful. Um, we better talk about Fortuna before we go. I love that. Uh, Fortuna, what's happening? Um, Fortuna, obviously, with Sarah Doro, uh, is is pushing Fortuna back. Uh, we're still deciding, and that's probably if the, I hate, I, I, I like, you know, very set plans. Fortuna is fluid, and it, I think it will be fluid while we get Santana up and running. Um, then the question will be, does, do we kind of in parallel build Cerradoro and Fortuna, or, or some of Fortuna's build happens at the same time? Uh, we could. We've looked at options to go that path, uh, working with groups in Mexico that effectively would give us the bandwidth to do that. Um, but I'm like, I still think that the sequential building, at least as we're, we're establishing a solid foundation in this company is the smart way to go about it. Um, because I think too many companies have tried to do too much too quickly and that's where they make mistakes. Reality is Matt, if we build uh, Santana this year in 2021, goes into operation. If Cerradora goes into operation in 2022 towards the end, and Fortuna happens to be 2024, that's a pretty impressive, for a tough little gang of guys in Mexico, that's a pretty, pretty good, you know, run out of, of three mines. Do we need to have them in sequential calendar years? I don't think we do. And I think if we push too quickly to do that, we run into, you know, you could run into problems. So, so instead, what we will absolutely do is, is ensure that work is going on at Fortuna, probably in latter part of this year and certainly into next year, that is going to improve uh, Fortuna. You know, remembering that original PEA was just based off a high-grade starter pit five years. Now, I would love to have those sub-$500 ounces right now. But in, in truth, that pit can be expanded. You know, it probably needs to be remodeled for 1450 gold. And, you know, let's start Fortuna with a seven, eight year life as opposed to this five year on that. So we'll add value to it, even if it gets pushed back a little in sequence and time. Right. But you will continue to use the model that you've employed to date, you know, with El Castillo, you know, previous, previous life as you're doing um, here with Santana. It's low capex, heat bleach type operations. That's what we should expect to see. It, to me, <laughs> heat bleach isn't necessarily glamorous. 
Uh, I saw draw results out today from uh, from Canada that you know that's what the high-grade junkie investors uh, love and lap up. It's not glamorous, but Heap Leach has made some of the world's biggest mining companies. Um, and it's a perfect low-capital build. It's our style. We will continue to look for them because we think it, it represents a tremendous opportunity. And all of our projects worked in a lower gold price environment. We're not these heat leeches now that have come back into vogue because we're at $1,700 gold. This business model was created in a $1,250, $1,300 gold environment. So, you know, and, and that's the way it should be. If we're lucky enough when we're selling gold at 1700, the difference between how we were modeling it and what we're selling it for should be felt in the balance sheet. Um, and so we're, we're excited about that. Doug, beautiful catch up with you. Glad it's all going well. I'm looking forward to, uh, to the next uh, quarter, see what you guys come up with and what you're talking to the market about. Appreciate your time, stay in touch. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.